here for another episode of Big Talk on WFHB. My name is Alexander Ashkin, and I am joined today by the brilliant, the very active and uh, community-oriented Angela Babb. She is an assistant research scientist over at the IU Ostrom Workshop in political theory and policy analysis, and also one of the leaders behind the People's Market. How are you doing today, Angela? I'm doing great. How are you, Alexander? I'm always doing good when I get to talk to interesting folks here in Bloomington. So as I mentioned in our intro, you work at the IU Ostrom Workshop, and that is named after the legendary economist Eleanor Ostrom. I've always had such an admiration for her. You started off in a little bit of a different field of study. You got a Bachelor of Science in Math and then went on to get a Master's in Geography. Can you help explain to me a little bit how you went from mathematics to geography? I see that you even have a doctor in philosophy uh, in geography. Can you kind of explain this journey and how it led you into becoming a bit of like a food justice and food security activist? I did mathematics in undergrad because I just really enjoyed mathematics in high school. And I I scored high enough to skip a few levels in college and just kept riding that wave for a while. When I got out of undergrad, I worked a lot of jobs trying to find myself. I last was in the accounting department at Wormsway, mm-hmm. uh, learning how to garden, uh, being an accountant, and I uh, decided it wasn't really the most fulfilling career path for me. So I started a night class in climate and weather uh, with the crazy notion that I might want to be a meteorologist and um, the professor at the time talked me into applying for grad school the plan was for me to do climate uh, modeling and study climate change in the geography department so I started the master's program uh, doing that but by the end of my first year, I was studying food instead and food security. Um, I had never really known the d- discipline of geography before that. And once I realized the possibilities and just the breadth of issues that I could study as a geographer, I found that my heart was with food security and figuring out how to make it so people didn't have to be hungry in our country. That's one of the things that's really dear to my heart. Can you tell me a little bit more, particularly about the research you do at the Ostrom Workshop? Is it all largely focusing on food security issues these days? Sure. Well, a lot of my work is on the SNAP program. That's Mm -hmm. the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps. And uh, that's what I wrote my dissertation on was the calculation of 
food stamp benefits and what people get when they participate in the program. Um, that was the nice intersection that I found for me to do math and geography and address an issue with food security in our society. So I um, joined the Ostrom workshop um, on an emerging areas of research grant called Sustainable Food System Science. Um, I joined a group of, of 10 folks at the time. Now we're, I don't know, 20 or 30 of us that are studying everything from food production to uh, food security, food justice, food sovereignty. Um, so I joined that team kind of on the consumption side of things and um, my policy analysis is really around the SNAP program. Obviously the desire to help less fortunate folks particularly get nutritious filling meals that kind of helps them succeed seems to be core to a bit of your mission. Yeah, I mean, we really don't have a sustainable food system until everyone is able to define their food system, until everyone has uh, food sovereignty, and with that will come food security. So you're using a term that I think not many of our listeners are exactly aware of, food sovereignty. Do you mind uh, defining that for us? I'll start with food security, which is really the, the most mainstream term used, and that's basically when everyone has access to safe, nutritious, culturally appropriate food. Mm -hmm. But it's a very apolitical sort of definition. It doesn't really get into the, the access, how people are accessing and whether that access is culturally appropriate, as well as the, you know, the food production, uh, the processing, the service, the whole food chain and whether people have living wages and, um, and a right to, you know, the basic human rights throughout the food chain. So food sovereignty is really about not just when everyone has access to food, but when everyone has access to a democratic voice in the food system. Um, it's about reclaiming the land that was stolen from black and brown bodies. And um, it's about not just settling for the food that's available from a system that's been shaped by mostly white male capitalists. One of the things that I think has been emblematic of your work in trying to further food sovereignty, particularly here in Bloomington, is the people's market. Back when the Schooner Creek incident happened in the summer of 2019, and for all those who are unaware, Schooner Creek is a farm out in Brown County that got embroiled in some controversy regarding their membership of what is referred to now as a white identitarian group. If you are interested, I highly recommend people check out the Ellen Wu article in the Limestone Post titled, Ethos of the New People's Market Focuses on Food Justice and Mutual Aid. One of the things that came about this was an attempt to greater democratize the farmer's market institution here in Bloomington particularly moving it away from a space that felt 
there was sort of a constitutional need, let's put it that way, to shield people who have a, a philosophical and ideological viewpoint that is very antithetical to Bloomington. Part of this clearly came about with the work that Abby Ang did and uh, Ellen Wu, No Space for Hate, obviously was a big part of this. And they partnered with Blooming Foods to sort of get the ball rolling. And you were already on the board of directors of Blooming Foods at that time. That all came together with those groups coming along with Mallory Rick, uh, Rick Beal dreaming up this uh, alternate market space. In your own words, could you kind of help peel back the curtain a little bit to what that initial discussions and sort of the planning was of the people's market? You were really there from the idea's inception. It's been a long year, well, long two years. So there's a lot of stories that come to mind. One thing that happened to me before the People's Market formed that was really eye-opening to, to me and the, the severity of the situation was uh, a protest uh, we did. There were a few groups that came together that marched from the, the square uh, to the market. We were confronted by um, an, an SUV in the road actually almost hit a few of us and a gentleman came out and started yelling at us and shoving a few folks, saying horrible things, calling people names. Just because we had, you know, some signs and uh, a few of us, you know, were in black block and uh, we didn't, you know, we were having a peaceful demonstration and this just our presence in the street, standing up for what we believed in, um, was causing people to get so angry. Mm -hmm. We kind of shook off that experience. We kept walking to the market. Um, we stood outside with our signs. And I, I wow, is the time before masks. Um, <laughs> to think about, but. It seems like a different time <laughs> entirely. <laughs> right. Um, but I remember uh, that day I decided to, you know, not wear full black black so I could have conversations with folks. So my, my face, you know, was out. I was trying to have conversations, but the community just kept yelling at me to stop disrupting the market to, you know, let it go that this really violent organization had a platform at our market and was making it so unsafe for others. That was really shocking to me. That was a moment where I realized we needed, we needed something else. We needed to create a safe space outside of uh, the city market. That's just a personal story from before um, the People's Market was formed, one where I learned just the severity of the situation and um, how deep the issue was in our community of white supremacy uh, that was coming, you know, to the forefront. It's just, it's, it's a difficult thing that in, in 
you know, Southern Indiana, you know, the heart of the, the KKK, that it was just, it's really difficult for people to realize the depth of these issues that we have to deal with. One of the academics who really inspire me, uh, Professor Amrita Chakrabadi Myers, she described as like sometimes people get really defensive and push back when you're sort of asking them to confront that sort of internalized bias because a lot of times they don't recognize it in themselves. Was there ever an opportunity that yourself or perhaps individuals like Abby Ang and No Space for Hate had to sort of foster discussion either with the city or try and sort of initiate a more direct peaceful uh, sort of protest with those who were involved. Obviously, there's plenty of coverage about this throughout 2019, including what ended up being a bit of an escalation with members of the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and folks like that showing up at the market armed. Was there ever any discussions in the back channels or other folks trying to find potential solutions to this prior to that sort of discussion with No Space for Hate and Blooming Foods and all the folks who ended up becoming the founding members of the People's Market? Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of discussions, a lot of approaches. You know, at one point we were organizing folks from the Indiana Black Farmers Cooperative to travel to Bloomington to help facilitate a discussion about how important it was to address white supremacy and to be actively anti-racist. There were a series of conversations uh, between vendors and activists that were facilitated, although I missed quite a few of those. I remember one in particular, though, that I I made it to where we talked um, very peacefully about the kind of discourse around the issue. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually, it was a conversation organized by um, BTCC, Building Thriving Compassionate Communities. That was really a productive conversation, but you know, the more conversations we had, the more we realized just how long it was going to take us to sort through all of this and find some common ground. You know, we're still having those conversations to this day with with folks that realize now just the, the weight of the situation, the weight of their own actions and not speaking up or, you know, standing up for the white supremacist vendors. Um, and not being allies to the, you know, the persons in our community who were, you know, most vulnerable at that time and most marginalized in the conversations and the public discourse. So, yeah, there was a lot, and, and I only saw a fraction of it. Just, I, I just remember a flurry of, you know, one-on-one conversations, small group conversations, so much like, what do we do? How do we address this? How do we have a dialogue that isn't shut down right away with these, you know, emotions and defensiveness? As an aside, the name of BTCC 
just really sort of st sticks out to me, building thriving, compassionate communities. That's something that these days should be the goal of any locality, any municipality. So do you have any ideas or any advice to people in order to sort of help foster a more thriving, more compassionate community here in their hometown? One thing that stands out to me, and it's, it's fresh in my mind after making it as long as I could last night watching the city council meeting on the ordinance on um, unhoused folks uh, mm -hmm. sleeping in the parks, um, is that we have to listen to folks with lived experience and we have to honor their experience, respect and believe their experience mm -hmm. um, and value them as experts. That can be challenging in this town where we have a, a university and we see folks with doctorates, advanced degrees, um, with no lived experience lifted up as experts in a particular on a particular topic or, or situation. And 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 they are to some extent experts. Uh, that's how they got a PhD. But there's uh, an unlevel ground on which we value um, someone's expertise over others. And I think we always need to reach out to folks who have actually lived the experience of the issue we're discussing or, you know, confronting, trying to find solutions to always make sure that folks with lived experience are at those decision-making tables, that they have access to share their experience, to share their perspective and their expertise. We need to listen and take it seriously. I cannot agree more that we do need to kind of have our ears and our hearts open, not just to those who have the technical and academic knowledge, but also the stakeholders, the people who are living in our communities, who are experiencing our services, who really are just as much citizens and community members of Bloomington as we are. Back in the fall of 2019, I had several one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks, some of whom you've mentioned, um, about how the city market was not safe any longer. Um, folks that had moved to the east side uh, were looking for a more permanent location. Uh, we, needed, we needed a safe alternative and we needed to have a real conversation about uh, white supremacy in this town. And those one-on-ones led to this large group meeting in January of 2020. That was probably 15 women. We were in the Eiffel building, I think in this nice little cozy space. We were farmers, business owners, activists, academics, pulled together to, to start talking about what can we create? Um, what can we build together that um, is different? and that will work for um, particularly for the folks that are not safe or were not safe at the city market. So we met weekly, two, three, four hours at a time, dreaming up this new model where we could uh, center equity, uh, center 
access to local food for everyone, um, center the needs of our local farmers and vendors. We, we had some big hopes and dreams that we, we still haven't been able to pursue because the middle of March, we realized we had to change models. We were thinking about these farmer's market spaces uh, that were mobile, different days of the week, that we could have education around white supremacy and anti-racism and, and space for community building. And, but we had to shift to the CSA model pretty quickly, kind of drive up and, and put it in the back of your car mm -hmm. without any contact, because um, that's the best we could do come middle of March. I'm glad you mentioned the CSA model. And CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. There's a great value proposition to those who want to be able to have regular access to freshly grown local foods. But also there seems to be a certain level of benefit to the farmers as well in terms of helping kind of create a little bit more of a steady income, uh, particularly in the winter months. Was there a particular impetus beyond just COVID, obviously, that really made you guys want to focus on that CSA model, or at least as you guys have kind of continued to grow, really promote that model? Yeah, I mean, the CSA model, and. Um, for those that might not be aware of the, the term, it's community-supported agriculture, and it's, it's rooted in, well, it start, popped up in a lot of places in the mid-20th century around the world as a model for farmers to secure funding up front to plan their production, anticipate the demand, and have some security in a very risky business. So it's it's coming from uh, Booker T. Watley's clientele membership club. That's kind of evolved into what the CSA model is today. And it's community members buying in, paying up front for food from the, the farmer. So they aren't investing all this money themselves in seeds and, and starts up front with the hopes that, you know, the weather is okay, that the crops aren't destroyed by a number of factors, um, and that customers essentially buy what they grow. So it's really a good model for what we're trying to do, and I think we've leaned into it because it works. It works for the farmers, it works for customers, and the way that we've implemented it, at least complementing that model with the sponsor boxes and the matching for EBT. It seems to be one that works for everyone throughout the system, which is what we're going for. You mentioned matching for EBT. It's one of these things that I think a lot of people have in the past almost sort of chided the farmer's market model in the past is that it's like, oh, it's wonderful. But, you know, not everyone can spare 350 or $4 for a head of cabbage. How, in a sense, do you guys make that sort of matching program work? Because I'm sure there's quite a bit of uh, bureaucratic red tape. 
Actually, the matching is just done with donations from the community. So wow. we've actually been able to utilize the great economic inequality that we have in this town through the sponsor boxes and the matching. We're, we're pulling together more affluent um, customers and they're buying sponsor boxes for those that can't necessarily afford to buy a box or they're giving donations and we use those donations um, to basically match half the cost of those same foods um, for those using EBT, which is electronic benefits transfer um, for the SNAP program. It seems like there's a really big emphasis on trying to help bridge this gap. One of my favorite Bloomingtonians of all time, Charlotte Zitlow, she once described Bloomington as sort of a barbell community. You know, you have a lot of people on either ends, very affluent, and also some folks who are also very impoverished. It seems like this has kind of culminated in a sense when you guys opened POP back in September of 2020. POP being the People's Open Pantry. So we were uh, selling these um, half-priced boxes to those with um, SNAP benefits. And um, we were finding that folks were still having trouble accessing some other foods that our local farmers didn't have to offer. So we thought about how can we uh, complement the foods that we have from local farmers with other food um, so that folks coming in, especially during a pandemic, when even to come in and, and, you know, have that interaction of running your EBT card is high risk, whereas others without EBT are able to just pay online. So folks coming into our location to buy the EBT boxes, we thought about setting up a pantry where we could get some more of these staple foods from uh, the food bank and offer those to complement what was coming from local farmers. And so we, we set up POP, uh, People's Open Pantry, and we have People that come through that aren't necessarily shopping from the CSA, but just come through the pantry. And then we have folks that are getting their CSA share and then they kind of loop through the pantry while they're there. One thing that I found that's unique about POP is that it only operates on Saturdays. Was there a particular decision behind that? Well, the main reason we went with Saturdays because we were already there uh, with the EBT shares on Saturdays. So we thought, let's open the pantry while we're here. We're all volunteers um, who have full-time jobs during the week. So, you know, Saturday, we're already there. Let's open the pantry. It just, it, it felt um, like the right thing. Also, when we looked into it, we realized that most of the pantries in the area are not open on Saturdays. So we could actually complement that schedule of the other pantries. Um, and offer another day of the week, an additional day of the week for folks to access a pantry. Thank you so much, Angela Babb. She is an assistant research scientist over at the IU Ostrom Workshop, also one of the leaders behind the People's Market. Thank you, Angela Babb. And to all of our listeners, have a great night. <laughs>